Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Do you have a sweet tooth? If not, fair warning, by the end of today's show you will. We begin the sweet story at Swiss Confectionery, the place for nearly a century New Orleans brides have seen their wedding dreams come true. That distinct almond-flavored wedding cake is so ubiquitous here in New Orleans, wedding cake is considered a flavor of its own, particularly at local snowball stands. Then we travel all the way to Baltimore to meet Mitchell Getz of Getz Candy. He's the fifth generation to guide the 123-year-old family business there. Wait till you hear the sweet, although scandalous tale of how his great-grandparents came to meet and marry. Then, we visit Elmer Chocolate in Ponchatoula, Louisiana, our very own heritage candy company. Although they've been around since 1855, it may surprise you to learn that one of the largest, most modern boxed candy companies in North America operates right here in our own backyard. From wedding cake to caramel creams, we've got you covered on this week's Louisiana Eats. If you've ever attended a wedding in New Orleans, there's a good chance you've enjoyed a piece of cake from Swiss Confectionery. Run by five generations of family, the bakery is probably best known for their signature almond-flavored cakes. These custom-made delicacies are fixtures at New Orleans weddings, birthdays, and celebrations. Though cakes make up the majority of the business, Swiss Confectionery also produces Russian cake, Dobert squares, and other New Orleans classic sweets for just about any occasion. The Louisiana Eats crew visited their almost 100-year-old bake shop in their new mid-city location, where we were offered a piece of French buttercream cake and a slice of history. Mmm, this is the first. We never got icing on the mic stand before. <laughs> we're in the right place. We spoke with two generations of the long-running family business. I asked them to introduce themselves. I'm Stefan Collada owner of Swiss Confectionery, fifth generation. I'm Laurel Mocklin, retired owner of Swiss Confectionery. I'm Lauren Wyken. I'm the mother of Stefan, the sister of Larry. Larry is Lawrence's nickname. He and Lauren began by giving a brief history of the family business, taking us back to the 19th century. My great-grandfather arrived from Switzerland in the end of the uh, 1800s. I believe his father was also a baker, and he and at least three of his brothers were bakers, and he was actually doing an apprenticeship in Switzerland. And as with most family businesses, there was some bad blood going on, and he got up and left. 
and wound up in the United States. Another brother wound up in Argentina. He has a sponsor who's hooking him up with the job in the United States, a local bakery in Mobile, Alabama. He works for this German baker and his wife, which he didn't like them at all. They kept trying to match him with their daughter, but he didn't like her either. He ends up marrying his sponsor's daughter in Mobile. He has my great uncle Henry and a daughter. The daughter unfortunately died as a baby, and then his wife dies as well. He takes his son, Henry, and comes to New Orleans. He stays at a boarding house where he met my great-grandmother, whose family owned it. And she was 20, he was 40 when they got married. Yeah, big difference. Then they have two more children, my great-aunt, Olga, and my grandfather. Opened up Swiss Confectionery in 1921, and it's been going through the family for five generations now. So this has always been a family business. Do a little lineage and tell me what you can about who worked. Was anybody particularly talented at one thing or another? Massage from my great-grandfather, who was the baker, and then my grandfather, who was the baker. There was my dad, who was, although he was a baker, I think what made his reputation and kind of made the business's reputation was his cake decorating ability. And so it was he and his brother for a while who then left the business. Countless cousins, uh, some as salespeople, some as decorators, some as bakers. Obviously my sister and myself, my children have worked some summers until they found their own careers. Then when my children decided that they had wanted to do something for a living besides work in the baker business, my nephew decided he wanted to step up and become the fifth generation. So that's where we are now with him learning the tricks of the baking and how to prepare the cakes for the customers and probably looking to start the sixth generation soon. How soon did you all come to the bakery as children? Well, my grandparents lived on top of the bakery on Frenchman Street. We were all on weekends, my grandparents babysit my sisters and I. So we had free run of the bakery and the French Quarter, which was, you know, when you used to let eight-year-old children run around and uh, I remember playing hide-and-go-seek in the bakery when they were closed, getting hit in the oven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a revolving rack oven, so you get in, somebody would move it so you'd be in the back and then turn it off and close the doors, and nobody could see you back up in there. Stefan, what are some of your earliest memories? Well, let's see. I mean, I remember summers during probably grade school uh, similar situation. Uh, I was the oldest of my siblings. It's just my brother and I and uh, the three cousins, Larry's kids. But I remember the Thanksgiving meals and I remember making mints. We used to make mints and send them out with every wedding cake. I remember cutting patty shells when I was tall enough to reach the counter. That New Orleans staple, the patty shell. And, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned those mints because I do think in a lot of people's memories, those, those little buttercream flat mints in pastel colors are a big part of what they remember. Why do they remember that? Why was that important? It was on the table of every wedding cake, right? Right. A lot of the caterers, pretty much when they'd ordered a wedding cake from us, they'd say, and a pound, pound of mints to match. And that went on forever where we would be making 40 pounds of mints during the week. 
And so it kind of became a, a job for somebody to do. But we were making them right up until the hurricane. And then when we came back from Katrina, we just didn't have enough manpower. We had to cut some products out because they took up too much time as compared to s some other things that were maybe more profitable and ordered a lot more often. But we never did stop making the patty shells, both dinner and cocktail size. And, uh, and I've got the blisters to prove it. Is this baking ability in your genes? Did you just come on this earth with this knowledge? Osmosis. Um, <laughs> yeah, but actually, my brother did go to baking school. The American Institute of Baking, which is now part of uh, Kansas State University. It moved out of Chicago. It, was, uh, it wasn't a bakery training school as much as a science and technology and management school. And uh, so when I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was about a month short of graduating from LSU in mathematics. I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living, so I had been working at the bakeries for all the summers and at a bakery in uh, Baton Rouge between classes. And uh, so one day I called up my dad and said, hey, if you send me to Chicago, I'll uh, come to work for you. So we came to an agreement, and that's how I wound up in it. But actually, I suppose just like my dad and my grandfather, we learned much better by standing next to our dad than we could have learned in the school. Because my dad did go take some courses at Delgado in baking science. And where you go to work is going to train you the way they want you to anyway. Now, when you came home from Chicago, did you bring some newfangled ideas with you that you put into place at the bakery? I brought a lot of new ideas, but they went right out the front door when my dad heard them. Uh, <laughs> I, wa I wanted to mechanize a lot of stuff so I wouldn't have to work so hard. And we did buy some new equipment along the way, but it turns out, you know, it's better to do it by hand a lot of times. Now, at what point does wedding cake become the primary business here? Well, I guess since I've been, I've been working here 45 years, so, you know, I probably know more of the history than anybody at the table right now. I think what caused it was my dad's really good cake decorating ability and the, the decision to go out to caterers and offer to supply them with cakes, you know, like a no hassle, one-stop shop. You know, I can remember a whole lot of wedding cakes when I was a kid, you know, my dad not being home on Thursdays and Fridays, just decorating wedding cakes, where there were times, even after he retired, I can remember doing 70 wedding cakes a week. And the decorating was hard, but more, much more difficult was getting them all delivered at the times they wanted them. And that's kind of why we started pulling back from those type of numbers. It was just too hard getting all those cakes delivered to the hotels and caterers at the times they wanted them and, uh, and in the, on the streets of New Orleans. And I can remember no air conditioning in the delivery vans also. I'm sure you've got lots of disaster stories. Well, so that's what I remember. Yeah. I mean, when I was <laughs> old enough to help someone else carry a wedding cake, that's pretty much what I did on the weekends for, you know, extra money. And, uh, yeah, there were definitely some cakes got dropped or didn't make the trip or, you know, the heat, the roads, the traffic, whatever. There's no more excitable human than a bride. What in the world do you do? Hopefully we fix it before the bride even knows. <laughs> or make another one or? Tell the story after the hurricane at uh, Muriel's. We were, we were in the French Quarter and, uh, you know, middle of the day on a Saturday, uh, right in front of Muriel's. And uh, so right there at the square. And uh, 
there was a fire hydrant formerly where I parked and uh, my helper jumped out of the van and what was left of the fire hydrant was a pole that was right about knee high and so as he came out of the van with the cake in his hands and took a step back it hit him right in the back of the knee and he tumbled backwards and the cake flips over and the board hits him in his head and he's got he's bleeding and I'm <laughs> pretty cold to me, but I'm laughing because the whole thing was just great to watch. It looked like a cartoon, I imagine. And, and we're surrounded by tourists and everybody's, oh! <laughs> and then in my, I, my own stupidity, I guess, I was just kind of, we were so busy. I didn't even clean up the mess. We drove away because we had so many other cakes to deliver and, well, we're going to have to come back and deal with this. We got a phone call. My uncle had to go out there with a broom and clean up the, oh. your delivery driver dropped a cake and didn't even clean it up. Oh. <laughs> Ate more cakes on the truck. I had to go. <laughs> and, and I, as soon as I got the call, I was grabbing the snow shovel and the broom already, knowing that there was nothing they could do to pick up the cake. Was they going to pick it up with their hands? No. And throw it where? I've done it. <laughs> oh, ouch. If you had to guess, how many wedding cakes over time do you think that you all have been responsible for. How many weddings has Swiss confectionery been a very important part of? You mean since 1921? Yeah, give me a guess. Almost 100 years? It's got to be tens of thousands. Well, to do the quick math, you figure we were much fewer wedding cakes in the 20s and 30s, and then it started picking up, and now we, you know, averaging 25 or 30 a week now. But say, so overall, say we averaged 20 a week that's a thousand a year so that's it's uh oh my goodness yeah it's a, more like a hundred thousand a hundred thousand a hundred thousand wedding cakes a hundred thousand brides that's a frightening thought <laughs> some of them are second and third marriages so let's not get carried away that was stefan culotta laurent mocklin and lauren whitekin of Swiss Confectionery in New Orleans. Coming up next, we learn the rich history of Getz Caramel Creams. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter, dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pimm's Cup cocktails, Toasty warm muffalettas. All day dining and private events at 500 Royal Street. Back before World War I, in the year 1895, 
a father saw an opportunity to both buy a struggling chewing gum company and leave behind a legacy for his son to nurture. In that year, August Getz bought the Baltimore Chewing Gum Company for his son William to run. 123 years later, that company, the Getz Candy Company, is still a thriving business. We had an opportunity to speak with August's great-great-grandson, Mitchell Getz, about just how far the family has come. I asked him to begin by telling us what he knew about those early years. August Getz and his son, William, purchased the Baltimore Chewing Gum Company in 1895. Actually, August was the father, actually purchased it, and William ran it. So William was the first operator. We have a classic picture, I believe it's on our website, of William and his first 22 ladies. Yes, I'm looking at that picture right now. It is adorable. Yep, classic picture. And if you look really, really closely, I shouldn't say this, but I will, (laughs) the lady sitting next to him has her hand on his knee under his arm. Oh, yes, I do. Let me guess, is that your great-great-grandmother? Um, they later wedded, yes, but it's, um, I'm actually in our conference room and there's a, there's a picture on the wall. I happened to look up and he's staring at me. So I, I don't think I should say any more about that or when I'm here tonight by myself, I might hear some stairs creak or something, but that's sort of the broken branch in the family tree. But it's, it's a unique picture. It's been around here forever and nobody ever picks that up unless you look really, really closely. So they buy this chewing gum company, and did they immediately begin to make changes with candy additions? Were these 22 ladies part of what came with the purchase? Now, I don't, I don't know if they came with the purchase. I, I have to believe that, you know, they didn't know how to make chewing gum day one. And it was called chewing gum. It wasn't called bubble gum back then because you couldn't blow bubbles with it uh, back before artificial gum base, which is in gum today, which is why you can basically chew it forever and it doesn't fall apart. Chewing gum was made out of the chickle tree, which is kind of like a rubber tree. And so my grandfather says you would, you would chew this gum and most gums at that time, you would chew it. And after a while, it would just start falling apart in your, your mouth. It was somewhat more medicinal than than it was confectionery or or entertainment. Um, you know, to, to chew gum like spitting on the street was not the most pleasant thing to see somebody do. But <laughs> if you look at a lot of our old packaging and and signage and some things that we have here and that we we actually found on the internet, a lot of the taglines are you know reduces indigestion, makes you feel better. So there really was a function to to chewing gum. Uh, back in 1895 and before. Chewing gum somehow inspires a candy called Chewies. Uh, yes, I, I, I think so. Um, you know, we got into the caramel business by mistake. So basically, my grandfather, uh, Melvin, who passed away in 2011, he was third generation, and he wanted to become a doctor. He was going to medical school. And so when he went off to the Second World War, we actually have the letters that basically, and they're really well written and they're very interesting. They, he basically talks to his son about, you know, when you come home, I hope you join us in the business. And so he did when he got out of the war, he, you know, joined the candy company. 
And he always tells that story because he said, geez, I could have made 10 times more being a doctor, but it was just kind of the right thing to do. But certainly later in life, he felt like he did far better here than he would have been, um, you know, the medical profession. So it's sort of around the time you all make this move that the Chewies come into existence. What's the story behind that? So Chickle was an imported product. Chickle trees, much like rubber trees and cocoa trees, they don't grow in the United States. So it was imported. And I can only imagine what they did back at the turn of the century, importing, you know, raw materials. But when the Second World War rolled around, they had a really hard time importing chickle. And if you know any of the history of the William Wrigley Chewing Gum Company, they started around the same time. But what they did is they started buying chickle plantations, something we did, we did not do. And so as the supply became tight, they obviously were able to get chickle, and, and we were not. Um, and in order to survive, my grandfather said, basically his father, my great-great-grandfather, they just started making general confections. Because if you think about back uh, in that time as well, there were a lot of regional food and confectionery companies because there was no refrigeration, there were no trucking lines. You know, what was made in a certain region kind of stayed in a certain region. So there wasn't a lot of competition. So if they went to Chicago and uh, ate a kind of a cool piece of candy, they would come back here and they would try and make it. And that wasn't unique to us. And everybody sort of became general line confectionery companies. So when we had a hard time getting chickle, the natural thing to do was, okay, well, what else can we make? And one of the items that we thought we could make, because it was similar to chewing gum, was caramel. But we never made caramel before. And we used to have a little kitchen, my grandfather said, in the back. And every day for lunch, you know, all the workers would go back there. And there were obviously no microwaves, so people would cook things on a stove. And uh, they just started trying to make caramel, burning sugar and, and milk and making it brown and seeing what they could do. Um, and for some reason, they put wheat flour in it, I guess, similar to baking bread or cooking bread. And unbeknownst to us at the time, that was actually sort of the, the ingredient that made us really unique and made the product unique. Is it the wheat that gives it um, a texture that I'm not accustomed to? Yes, and a lot of people have said that. Some know what it is. Others when we would go into new markets or, you know, in the last decade or so, as we export product overseas and go to international shows, people will eat our product and they just kind of stare at me and they're not quite sure what it is. They're like, this isn't really a taffy. It's not really a caramel, even though it obviously goes through a caramel process. You know, sort of what, what is this? And yes, the wheat flour uh, it's not really wheat like in bread, but it's wheat flour is the first ingredient. And, that really sort of changes the dynamic of the product in in a lot of ways, whether it be how it eats, the fact it doesn't stick to your teeth, it doesn't melt. I say it sort of gives off kind of a nutty nutty note as opposed to if you were to eat a traditional really rich uh, caramel that was super sweet, really sticky, very rich, you'd eat maybe one or two of them and that, that would be that. I think it's a a more delightful sort of eating experience. And I think 
That's how we started as a Chewy, but then introduced the center into it. Because really, way back when, we weren't the only ones making this product. And without giving away all the manufacturing secrets, most of those products back then had a swirled center as opposed to one large center. And so we did the large center because the feeling was that the caramel wasn't sweet enough on its own. That kind of gave it sort of this fondant, um, sugary center that, as you ate the product, sort of sweetened your mouth initially. And then as you're halfway through the product, leaves you with just the, the caramel. So It's like icing on the inside. <laughs> right, right. It's so unique. We actually were able to get a U.S. trademark on the caramel brown with a white center piece of candy, as well as the traditional wrap, the red and white wrap. That took us forever and puts us in the league of the Hershey Kiss and some other very unique items. We've been around so long, we proved to the trademark office that it is uniquely gets, and they granted us a trademark on that. So nobody can make a, a similar product. You can't patent or trademark food. Anybody can make a caramel or a chocolate bar or a loaf of bread for that matter, but the likeness and, of course, the name can be protected. So we were able to to do that. And so we started making caramels, and then naturally we just got out of the, the gum business. I think we are definitely seen by consumers as somewhere between chocolate and a true sugary confection. We're kind of somewhere in the middle, and, and where that, I believe, is a benefit to us is I think adults enjoy our product. I think younger age people enjoy our product. You know, that's what has helped differentiate ourselves from the rest of a very busy, crowded confectionery set. That was Mitchell Getz, fifth-generation owner and operator of the Getz Candy Company. French Quarter, Leah's Pralines is a quaint, family-owned and operated candy shop, steeped in a delicious history. Purchased by the glamorous Leah Johnson in 1944, Leah's Pralines boasts the title of oldest candy shop in the Vieux Carré. I stopped into Leah's one rainy afternoon to speak with Elna Stokes and her daughter Susie, who's the third generation to work the family business and learn more about the Johnson family's history with Pralines. Hi, I'm Elna. I've been running the shop for 31 years. It was my Aunt Leah's shop. Since 1944, it's been in our family in this location. Um, I'm Susie, Elna's daughter, and I work at the shop every day. I make candy, wait on customers, and do general management stuff. (laughs) Well, let's take us back to the start. Explain to me who your Aunt Leah was and how she became so well-known for her pralines. She purchased the shop in 1944, and her goal was to have the best pralines anywhere, and I think that's why she, she became well-known, because quality and taste were what she was going for. So 
Tell me about this glamorous woman who mm. was your Aunt Leah. Uh, you've got some photographs of her here, and in one of them, she's sort of looking like the archetypical businesswoman seated at a desk. And then there's a very, very elegant photo of her in an emerald green long gown. My aunt was a model back in the day. John Robert Powers was the great modeling school in New York. She was a graduate of that school, and she was truly a glamorous and beautiful woman. And this dress, the long green gown, she was modeling that gown. Oh, I see. And so that photograph then ends up on your box today. Right. What are your first memories of actually making pralines yourself? Because pralines are a tricky thing to make. By the time my aunt sold us the business, okay, she was old and she was ready to stop working all the time. And she gave me printed recipes. The recipes had no instructions. It just was ingredients, all right? Okay. None of the people that used to make the candy were still living. We had to learn how to make the candy based on the recipes. So tell me how your product selection and how... Things have changed here at Leah's Praline since the time of your great Aunt Leah. Um, well, when Aunt Leah ran the shop, she made traditional pralines, which we still use the same recipe. Um, she made the frosted pecans, and they made the pecan brittle, which back then they called pecan flake. Um, and since my mom started running the shop, we added many other things. We have a whole line of chocolates that we make here. Um, we do turtles and chocolate dip brittles and various nut bars. The chocolates are really good. Um, and then we also do a creamy praline. And our creamy praline is really creamy. It's almost like a fudge. Um, but it's really soft and buttery. And that's something that was added later on. And um, the most popular thing we have that was added fairly recently is our bacon pecan brittle. And bacon pecan yeah. brittle? It's basically um, just the pecan brittle recipe, the one that we've been using forever. Um, and then we take bacon and we cut off the fat and we render it, cut it up in small pieces and render it till it's really crispy and just add it to the brittle. And so it basically becomes this like sugar coated candied bacon with the pecans. Um, and it's really good and it's very popular. I mean, that's I probably the traditional pralines and the bacon pecan brittle are our two best sellers right now. The equipment here. How old or how modern is the equipment? How, how much of the equipment here was from your Aunt Leah's time? I know we have copper kettles that are from my, my aunt. But we also have a candy stove, the round candy stove. That was here when I was a little girl. Would you show it to me? Sure. As we entered the shop's kitchen, I could see the staff busy at work, weighing and bagging freshly made pralines. Elna led me over to a corner where her aunt's beautiful old copper kettle sat. This is incredible back here. It is really exciting. I have never seen a little stovetop like that. It's, it's, it sort of looks like a Victorian um, crawfish boiler. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a candy stove. It's, it's designed to be a candy stove. In that big copper kettle, about... How many pralines or how much brittle will come out of that big copper kettle? And what is the size of it? Um, it's about 10 inches deep and 21 or 22 inches across. Um, and I 
batch of pralines? It's about 180 pralines. Um, and um, a batch of brittle is about 12 pounds. Now, you could cook more if you were had a bigger place to pour the brittle. Uh -huh. But we do make everything in small batches, and we can control the candy better that way. The table must have come from Aunt Leah as well. This table has been right here in this spot since I was 12 years old. This, this marble top, this thing weighs so much, you could never move it. Explain the importance that the marble makes. Um, marble cools the candy. Um, so the pralines, we uh, dip on the marble to cool it. Um, the brittle, they pour it on the stainless steel table and stretch it because the stainless steel keeps it hot um, so it doesn't cool too quickly. So you can pour it, spread it, stretch it, and then, um, then we bring it to the marble and then that will cool it even more and then you can bag it. Um, but the brittle you do have to do quickly because it gets sticky, especially on a really humid day like today. It's raining outside. The brittle will just get very sticky. Um, when it's cooler, it's a little bit easier to work with. I also want to ask you, what is your favorite childhood memory of growing up here at Leah's Pralines? Well, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to find, remember what would be my favorite because I've spent my whole life here just about it. But, uh, I mean, I remember when the parade used to go down Royal Street and we could just walk out the shop and go watch the parade on the corner of Royal and St. Louis. And that was really fun. I mean, I enjoyed that. And we could also, we lived in this building upstairs on the fourth floor, and we had uh, not a balcony but a rooftop that we could actually see the parades from, you know, just walking outside the apartment, and we could see the parades on the corner. My favorite time of year in the French Quarter is, you know, Christmas time. Like Royal Street around Christmas when it's cold, oh my gosh, at night, it's so wonderful. Like I just love that, you know, and it's like I have so many memories of being a kid, like, you know, the Christmas customers and, you know, the holiday bustle in the French Quarter. It was really fun, you know, so that's probably one of my favorite memories. <laughs> Elna and Susie Stokes of Leah's Pralines. Have you ever wondered why Louisiana cane fields are often burned before being harvested each fall? Stay tuned, and we'll explain the reasoning behind that process when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarain's. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support 
from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. Have you ever wondered why Louisiana cane fields are often burned before being harvested each fall? Farmers burn sugarcane before harvesting to eliminate leafy stalk tops before the cane is cut and delivered to the sugar refineries. That lowers the cost of production and makes harvesting in the fields more efficient. It shortens the amount of time that harvesting takes by almost 10% and increases the yield of the refined sugar as well as the quality. Farmers refer to the process as a prescribed burn, which means that the application of fire takes place in a confined, predetermined area, allowing them to carefully manage the resulting smoke and ash. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. With a heritage that reaches back to 1855, Elmer Chocolate is not only the oldest candy maker in Louisiana, but one of the oldest in the nation. Today's president and CEO, Rob Nelson, is the third generation of only the second family to guide the Elmer Chocolate Company. He invited our Louisiana Eats crew to take a tour of his state-of-the-art chocolate factory in Ponchatoula. Upon arriving, I asked Rob how it was that Elmer earned its delicious reputation. Well, I think in any business, you have to be the best at whatever you do if you're going to be around for the long haul. So for the things that we've, we've chosen to, to concentrate as being our business, uh, we have, I think, the most efficient plan in the world for what we do. Uh, now, people locally know us for Easter candy. They don't even know that we're in box chocolates, a lot of people. But Easter candy is a very, very small part of our business. We only run it for about six weeks. Let's go back to the beginning. What prompted your grandfather to get into the candy business? He was single at the time and met a woman from New Orleans and, and on his first date said he would marry her. Now, they weren't in New Orleans time, so he came down to visit New Orleans for the first time. He flew from Los Angeles to New Orleans and she was supposed to pick him up at the airport. And it's a funny story because he waited and waited and she never showed up. So this is right around 1959, 1960, somewhere in there. He's looking at his watch. He said, well, if she's not here in 10 minutes, I'm going to grab that flight back to Los Angeles. So lo and behold, she showed up right at the last minute. And so he stayed and they ended up getting married. He stayed in New Orleans. So I like to joke around people, you know, with people here in the company that uh, that's how close it came to us not being where we are today. When it comes to those box chocolates that you're making, how many, what's the variety? How many different choices do you have in a box of chocolates? Well, we did a lot of research on this because uh, one thing is, you know, you've heard the old thing of, of people sticking their finger in the middle of the chocolate, oh, I don't like that one, I don't like this one, and, and looking for the map on the back to figure out which ones they like and which ones they don't like. and. People eat maybe a quarter of the box and they throw away three quarters. So we wanted to get away from that. And certainly if you're automating something, uh, the more standardized you make it, the better. And, and so we did focus groups. We did, uh, I mean, we you think about the old Pepsi challenge days. We literally went to the shopping malls around the country and had taste tests with people. And we came up with five different pieces that we saw as the most favorite pieces. 
we, we make a, a strawberry cream that's uh, covered in milk chocolate. We make an orange cream that's covered in dark chocolate. And uh, we make a truffle center, uh, and that's in a heart shape in most of our boxes. And uh, in a round shape, we make a caramel. And then we have another caramel that we make, but we inject dark chocolate into the caramel. So it's a dark chocolate caramel. And so those, those are the five pieces. I think that it's fascinating that you all are continuing to change with the times. Tell us about your innovation in ingredients that you're currently going through. What we've done is we've made a move to no artificial flavors or colors. And we were pretty close to that already. I mean, there was a couple of, uh, there was like one color and one, one flavor that's kind of hard to, to do all natural. But uh, we, we did a lot of work over that on that the last two years. And so for starting in 2018, uh, all of our box chocolate will be no artificial flavors or colors. Earlier, I'd had a trip down memory lane while in the waiting room at Elmer's. Original packaging for chiwis and mint bublets were displayed alongside chocolate boxes from earlier eras. My grandmother, Nana, had quite a sweet tooth. So her sweetheart, my grandpa, made sure there was always a signature big gold box of Elmer chocolates at hand. Today, the packaging has changed, and many of those original products are gone. But Elmer Chocolate has grown to be one of the largest volume boxed candy producers in North America. I asked Rob how this transition came about. You had a lot of general line candy companies around the country, and they serviced a perfect, you know, a certain geographical area of the country. So in the Gulf South, it was Elmer Candy, and they made you know, not only did they make Heavenly Ash and Gold Bricks, but they made, they made hard candy. They made Chiwis. They made Pralines. They made all sorts of different items. And, and you would go to the store shelf here in New Orleans, and everything on the shelf was Elmer. It was all different types of products, but most of it, I would say over half of it, was Elmer candy. Uh, it was kind of the jack-of-all-trades, master of nothing. And uh, that's when we decided to focus on seasonal box chocolate. And so uh, we stopped, in 1982, stopped making hard candy. We stopped making chiwis and just concentrated on box chocolate. Now, where the innovation came is at that point in time in the Valentine box chocolate market, you basically had a one-pound heart. That was the big seller. Everybody had a one-pound heart. And you had a two-pound heart. You had a half-pound heart and a quarter-pound heart. So, uh, and, and you had one or two people making all these boxes for all the different candy manufacturers in the country. That quarter pound box, that four ounce box of chocolate, retailed for about $1.99. And we figured out a way to make the box, assemble it here, in line, pack it, and be able to sell it at a price where a retailer could buy it, we could make some money, they could make some money, and they could retail it at a dollar. So, you know, this, this retail for this item that, you know, so, there wasn't a lot sold at the time. It was either $1.49, $1.99. And overnight, here it is, it sold for a dollar. And it opened up a whole segment of Valentine. It's now in units, the biggest segment of Valentine. And uh, that, that really put us on the map. And so as, as we've grown as a company, we've, you can now go out and buy hearts that are $20, $25, $30, but 
uh, the bulk of what you find are a dollar, and that same box that we made in the, in the you know 1984-85, it was a dollar. It's still a dollar. And you think of all the different things that have happened from raw materials going up to labor rates or you know everything that goes into making candy, and that's that's really the innovation that has made that happen. There's a lot of innovation that has been happening here at the Elmer Chocolate Factory. Tell us those wild numbers. How many pieces of candy? How many boxes? We're making about three thousand pieces a minute. So we're you know we're making four and a half, five million pieces of candy a day. Uh, we've devised a way to to capture that and move it around efficiently. And none of our chocolates for box chocolate are ever touched by human hands. So uh, it's made on state-of-the-art equipment. As it's moved around, it's encased, uh, kind of a configuration we've designed. And then it's packed by robotic arm, picks it up, puts it in the box at very high speeds. So we have multiple lines, but if all of our lines were making that same product, we could make 800 boxes of candy every minute. What we make, I would say 70% of what we make all year long sells in about three days. Hey, Miss hey, Sarah, how are you? As we walked through the factory, Rob showed us Elmer's complex robotics in action. So this building, the, the office building and the building we're walking into here was built uh, in the late 60s. It had opened up in January of 1970. And it's been added on to m multiple times, uh, the rec most recent in 2016. The technology is called cold stamp. We went from enrobing our chocolates, which was making a center putting on the belt and then dosing, you know, just completely covering with chocolate to making a molded product. And to get that center on the inside of the piece, we have to make a shell for the chocolate, then we put the center in, and then we put a bottom on it. But it's a long process. It's about this whole line, as a mold travels through the line, it's 130 yards, so it's longer than a football field. And there's many different stages to it. And it goes vertically and back, so it's really more than 130 yards. The cold stamp room over here, this is the driest place in the state of Louisiana. It's 1% humidity. <laughs> when this line was installed, it was the best line in the United States. Does your sugar come from all over the world, I imagine? No, it comes from Louisiana. About 70% of all cacao beans are coming from Western Africa. So I would say all the beans that we're using are coming from from Ghana, and and cow trees grow within 20 degrees of the Earth equator, so it's you're limited where it can grow, and and Africa is the biggest producer, and those beans will come to the United States, and then we bring it in by tank truck. So a big tanker truck full of chocolate arrives yeah, so here. Big stainless steel trucks on the highway. Yes. You know, you think maybe that's oil, maybe that's gasoline. It it could be chocolate. <laughs> and I had a story one time. This is a long time ago. This is probably back in the 70s. But we had a truck that was delivering chocolate, and he took a wrong turn, and he went down the wrong street here in Ponchatoula. Anyway, he was going over a railroad crossing. I think he jackknifed the truck. And so the chocolate started coming out the top of the truck. And all the kids in the neighborhood ran over and were, like, showering in the chocolate. They thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Oh, that's crazy. No, we didn't use that chocolate yeah. afterwards. <laughs>
Rob Nelson, President and CEO of the Elmer Chocolate Company. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcasts and also order a personalized copy of my new book, The Pascal's Manali Cookbook. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the website, too, as well as directions for how to find us. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don's Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Palace Cafe, home of the Weekend Jazz Brunch featuring a Build Your Own Bloody Mary bar located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.